Brad, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, you are one of the most prolific uh, journalists, opinion writers. Well, how do you, what, would you, what do you call yourself? I definitely call myself journalist, but an opinion columnist. Yeah. I'm very open up front about my bias. I'm not a reporter, but I'm a journalist and yeah. a writer. You don't hide your philosophy like exactly. some that's, so-called journalists. That's part journalists. of the problem with the media today. It's not that they're biased. It's that yeah. you don't know who's biased and who's not. Yeah, and I, I, I will admit that, that I you always have a smart take even when i disagree with you you're totally wrong about libertarians and tanks by the way oh but my God. but we well, that that's a whole different show we won't get into that but but i i go to you almost every morning uh, usually at uh, the foundation for economic education and uh, you are affiliated with young voices and you're now with um, what's the latest affiliation you have so i'm working as a fellow at the foundation for economic education and then i'm still columnist for the washington examiner and what about the what's uh, Jonah Goldberg's new thing? Oh right, I'm also contributing re- reporting for the Dispatch, uh, yeah. the the new David French Jonah Goldberg uh, project, which is cool too. Yeah, yeah. So you you have a foot in the libertarian camp. You call yourself a libertarian conservative. Right. What does that mean to you? So I actually wrote an article for the Cato Institute maybe a year ago about like I was trying to do the whole conservatarian thing, which branding wise has been kind of taken over, and I don't like that branding. But it's a general philosophy, right, of what do you do if you're not a full libertarian, like think the LP platform um, or that sort of thing, right? I'm not, I, I love Reason Magazine. I read it, but I'm not fully on board with every, every stance they take. And I'm socially more moderate, maybe leaning conservative mm-hmm. a little bit, honestly. Um, but it is for when someone's actually still a pro-liberty, small government conservative, that makes you a libertarian in the minds of today's populist conservatives. Yeah. So that's what it really is. I mean, if you still believe in the Bill of Rights, small government, you actually still care about the national debt, uh, you're basically like a libertarian conservative. And I, I say this all the time to especially young conservatives, young right-leaning libertarian people. A lot of us feel in the middle Yeah. and don't really identify with either one. So I, I, I've always, like when I identify myself, um, I usually use the word libertarian um, but I'm comfortable with classical liberal or constitutional conservative as well, and that's that's how I define them because because I basically have a very modest view of what government should do to mm-hmm. tell us how to live our lives, and and conservatives used to be that way. I'm not sure the new national conservatives are at all, um, but I, I think you can be like a full-throated conservative and a full-throated libertarian at the same time because. Libertarians have very modest expectations as to how the government's going to tell you how to live your life. And I would say the same thing about progressive. You could be a progressive libertarian as long as you don't want to use the violence of the state to rearrange outcomes, which there used to be a version of liberalism that was like that. Right. And Maybe I, not so much anymore. I think that's true for conservatives. I was actually surprised uh, when I started working at The Examiner. There were some social conservatives there. I mean, Tim Carney senior editor there he's socially conservative i'm very much socially moderate libertarian urban uh we agreed on almost everything politically yeah. yeah now we have very different beliefs in our own lives he's devout catholic goes to church every sunday i'm a gay libertarian who agnostic right but because neither of us we both had that rooted in small government i can't think of a single policy issue maybe one or two where we really disagreed yeah uh, and that's to me one of the key things that makes this libertarian conservative it comes down to, are you a pluralist, right? Do you want equality or do you want to conquer the other side mm-hmm. in the culture war using the state? 
right? That's what you have with the progressive activists who want to chase down the nuns and force them to pay for their birth control. Uh, and that's what you have on the other hand, right? When you have these, these new populist status conservatives who want to enforce morality in the public sphere onto others and blur the lines between church and state. So I think fundamentally there's this big group of us in the middle who I've almost started leaning out of labels because they tend to alienate more than they, like I took them out of my, I used to lean into them in an effort to be transparent about bias, but labels really put people off like yeah. libertarian or conservative or, um, but it's fundamentally, are you pluralist? Do you believe in the constitution, uh, liberal democracy, coexistence and real tolerance? Not as it's preached by the left, but actual tolerance as in coexistence. Yeah. Um, that's really it for me, the big divide. Yeah, tolerance and, and humility are two words I like to, to use. And I, th I think libertarianism at its best is, is quite humble about, about what we know as individuals and what we imagine we could get the government to do to, to orchestrate a better outcome in society. And, and sometimes we don't sound that way because we always sound like we're absolutely sure about everything. And that's, that's probably one of our Achilles heels. You're, I'm thinking about an article that you wrote, and I've pulled up. We, we talked about some of the articles that I'd re read recently that I thought were pretty interesting. And you have one on qualified immunity um, that shows up in National Review. Um, the misplaced populist opposition to uh, qualified immunity reform. And this is, this is a critique of conservatism, or at least the Blue Lives Matter sort of knee-jerk um, conservative reaction to any questioning of, of the potential police mm -hmm. abuse. Uh, explain your take on that. Yeah, so I just think that if you're a small government conservative, and despite what you hear from Tucker Carlson, who this article is about, and these new populist rights, they are not a majority of conservatives. They're a majority of Twitter conservatives. They've got one really popular guy on Fox News. They've got two guys in the Senate, Holly and Cotton. They are not a majority of actual conservative, actual Republican voters who actually still to some extent care about the idea of small government, right? Yeah. They're flexible with it for sure. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but that is not a lost battle. Not yet. At least I'm not willing to concede it. So basically the argument is that Senator Mike Braun, an Indiana Republican, fairly pro-Trump guy, introduced a bill scaling back qualified immunity. Right, and it was a modest bill. I, I honestly, I would get rid of qualified immunity entirely. Let's define it just in oh, case yeah, someone yeah. doesn't know what it is, because I, I assume people do, but. Qualified immunity is this legal doctrine created by the Supreme Court, basically out of thin air, uh, that gives any government official, so not just police officers, so that's what's really relevant right now, but we're talking about public college administrators, uh, state bureaucrats, complete civil liability for anything, for if they violate someone's rights. In practice, it's a de facto, almost complete liability. It, technically, it says you just have to point to a prior case, but it basically gives uh, public officials or agents of the state any liability from if they violate my constitutional rights, me, Brad Palumbo, I don't get my day in court unless I can point to an exact precedent that this liability shield says I have to have. And in reality, no situations are exactly alike. So anyway, Braun introduced a bill that would have scaled it back just a modest bill, part of reform, right? Tucker Carlson and these populist conservatives, they attacked him as pro-Antifa, <laughs> cop-hater, agent of the left, uh, Marxist sympathizer. Did, didn't he went on Tucker and Tucker right. just steamrolled him, right? Right, Tucker steamrolled him. And, to, and Senator Braun wasn't really up for that fight, that right, debate. Right. Uh, yeah. hate, hate to say it, hate to watch how that went down. 
uh, but they just treated him unfairly. And so my yeah. argument in that column and my argument more broadly, because I've really started to get into criminal justice reform in the last year or so, and I think a lot of us have, is that small government means a limited government in criminal justice. It is insane that we are supposed to be the freest country in the world, and in many ways we are. Right? We have the, one of the best documents founding our system of government, the Constitution, yet we're still the prison capital of the world. We're still throwing people in jail over smoking a leaf in their backyard or all sorts of things, violating an occupational licensing law. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem, and that's something conservatives can be convinced on. Look at President Trump in the First Step Act. Right, Republicans supported that. Now it's become a tribal thing. Blue Lives Matter versus the left. That's where we start to lose any chance of progress. But on the actual policy issues, small government, you can make a case to conservatives for criminal justice reform, and not all of them are lost yet. So I, I think we'll visit this theme over and over again, but it feels to me that that, that center ground is actually the principled ground. And it, it, uh, when it comes to qualified immunity and, and abuse of police power, the conservatives definitely have this, this blind spot. You know, when you talk to a constitutional conservative or just, just someone that is skeptical of government power when it comes to the welfare state and when it comes to, to bailouts and all that stuff, when it comes to the police, and I would say the same thing about the military and our, our never-ending wars, they have this blind spot where their, their critique of, of government power and how power corrupts on everything else suddenly when it comes to the cops, they can do no wrong. And that's a caricature, but they fall into that caricature. But the same thing could be said on the left when they critique police power. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you discover that one of the sources of police power and why you can't fire bad cops, racist cops, is because of police unions. And so they have a blind spot when it comes to public employee unions because it protects bad apples. And that's really bad when that bad apple has a gun and qualified immunity. So like we have this same thing on, on both sides and it strikes me that, that the liberty argument of limited government and limited power um, should be persuasive to, to people on the left and the right that are kind of searching and are like, I don't, I don't understand the inconsistencies. Yeah, but it's about getting through that tribalist filter that has consumed all of us, right? I struggle against it every day consciously not to view things in terms of left or right. Yeah. You know, why is it that conservatives like Charlie Kirk and Tucker Carlson raged against uh, Turning Point USA sued colleges over qualified immunity when it was campus officials violating students' free speech rights? I'm all with them. That's great. Power to them. Hope they win in court. But then they totally changed tunes, and he was one of the people leading the charge against Mike Brown over uh, qualified immunity. Same thing's true on the left. Like you mentioned with police unions, they are generally so pro-unions that they can't really fully critique police unions, even though they get reinstated awful police officers every year through their corrupt bargaining process because all the arguments about police unions are also true for teachers unions right. and the democrat party is in part financially beholden and politically beholden to teachers unions but more more so it's, it's just a tribal issue teachers unions are viewed as their guys on their side whereas police unions not so much but they can't really go after them because of that inconsistency so i think the criminal justice issue especially how it's unfolded in the last couple of months it shows you how tribalism skews people away from their principles, uh, but the, the solution to that is a really difficult question. Uh, it, it really, it, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, well, well, part of it is politics, and I, 
Um, Senator Mike Lee, who I have a lot of respect for, has has a pretty smart take. It, it's not necessarily a way to get out of it, but he can at least explain how we got here because everything has shift, shifted decisions that used to be local, decisions that used to be sort of a federalist, let the states mm-hmm. decide. Um, now all the eggs are in. Who's, it, who's the president? And whoever the president is gets to do whatever they damn well please, and that's why we have to fight so hard and so dishonestly and sometimes so violently to make sure that we control the levers of power so that we can smash the other side. His solution, which I would argue is more of a libertarian solution than a, than a conservative one, is like, let's, let's push this all back to the individual and the family and the community, and if we have to, the city and the state, but let's, let's let local people make local decisions. Um, but that doesn't tell us how to get out of this mess. No, it doesn't, but it, it does tell us how to, at least in part, heal tribalization and polarization and hatred. Because you're exactly right. It's all about, because we've built up the executive branch and the federal government more broadly into basically involved in every single aspect of life, whatever party or side is in charge of it at the moment gets to impose, to some extent, uh, checked really only by the courts, their vision of, of life and society onto the other. And so it's a battle, red versus blue, back and forth. Um, but really, if you delegated these, these polarizing decisions back to the states, it would be an outcome neither side would like. One of my probably most controversial opinions is that we really have to, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, the only solution that will not tear this country apart in the long term, delegate it to the states. And that would require uh, overturning Roe v. Wade to do, but California has to be allowed to be California, while Texas can be Texas, if we actually want to maintain a pluralist society while everyone gets to live side by side. If we have this kind of all or nothing total war over the federal government every four years, two years, with midterms, that is not a sustainable track for our society. I mean, just look at the current direction uh, of, our, of the discourse. It's a, it's a cultural debate, and it's about how you and I and, and people in, in our communities, how do we define life? And, and I'm, I'm always a Hayekian, and normally when I quote Hayek on the show, everybody drinks, and that's an important part of the show, but like his, his whole argument is that, that, that the rules that govern civil society were not imposed by the government. They were figured out through a long process of cooperation and, and argument and experimentation where people just realized that certain things worked. We, we figured out at some point that not hurting people or taking their stuff was a great way to hold society together. And I think that like this idea that if we just had the Supreme Court vote this way, everything would be fine is, is, is naive of this, this process by which humans figure out values and, 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 and rules and, and the way we cooperate. It is naive, but it, it's the result that we get when you have the cultural extremes on both sides and some of the loudest voices on, on both sides contributing to polarization and, more importantly, contributing to uh, the Flight 93 election mentality, right? We, we see that now even. If, if Biden wins, everything will, will have socialism in America. It will be AOC's country. Uh, that's not true. I mean, I disagree with Joe Biden's agenda on all sorts of things, but the same way that Donald Trump didn't literally turn America into the handmaid's tale and put gay people in camps, uh, as, as we were told, the same way that that's just as true for Biden. I mean, how much would he really get done? 
maybe a lot of bad things, maybe a lot of regulations, tax hikes, but America will survive four years of an old guy in the White House uh, telling his aides to do his job for him uh, in between his uh, oatmeal servings. But so that's the problem is, is so many people I talk to have this overstated value of what is at stake. And more importantly, too, they have no perception of what the other side actually believes. There's this documented effect in polling where there's a perception gap. What Republicans think when polled that Democrats believe is 20 points more extreme, 20 percent uh, than what it actually is. Same with them, uh, vice versa. People don't actually because in part because of social media echo chambers, in part because people have lost the ability to discuss things civilly. And now we've got cancel culture and snowflakes on both sides. Um, we have this perception gap and it's contributing to this problem. So that's a perfect segue to um, one of the better pieces I think you wrote um, at fee.org. And by the way, if, if you aren't reading fee.org, definitely go there because the, they're, they're good friends of ours. And I think there's a lot of um, intelligent stuff that they publish. And you wrote a piece on July 7th, is Black Lives Matter Marxist? No and yes. And, and I think that's, um, and again, this could, this could be a, a sort of teachable way to explain people how to view um, uh, teachers unions and how to view tribes and all that. And, and you, you, you draw a bright distinction between a few young Marxists who started Black Lives Matter and the people in the streets demanding um, more accountability for right. our justice system. So, I mean, I'm, I come from Massachusetts, which is almost as deep a blue a state as you can get. So it's interesting. My Twitter is, is professional, right? It's journalists, it's conservatives, it's policy people. So that's kind of a right wing bubble in a way. But my Facebook feed, my personal Facebook feed is mostly people I know. I went to high school with, I went to college with from UMass. Very liberal leaning, very blue. And you almost see them completely talking past each other on issues such as Black Lives Matter because of, because of this gap. So liberals view Black Lives Matter as a hashtag, a general sentiment that how could anyone oppose that, right? The 90% of the people in the streets or the people that would tell a pollster, yeah, I support Black Lives Matter. They view it as just a sentiment, a movement, a solidarity against police brutality, caring about racial justice, things almost anyone would say are good. And, and whereas on the conservative side, uh, they've honed in on Black Lives Matter TM, the official organization that has chapters. And that organization is a Marxist organization. It literally says, tear down the nuclear family, destroy capitalism. And so what we have is this total mismatch and it, people failing to understand each other. On Fox News, they just say, Black Lives Matter is Marxist, and anyone who agrees with it wants to destroy the nuclear family. Sort of true, right? The organization is. And people unwittingly en masse and in corporate sponsorships donate to that organization because they just think it's, oh, just a good charity. Uh, when it's really quite a crazy group but then on the other side um they don't actually most people don't even know about that group existing and they just think conservatives have this totally distorted view of what they mean by black lives matter so at the end of the day both sides just miss each other yeah like the the, the libertarian party is actually having this argument right now and you have you have both factions um sort of represented and it's it's fascinating to me and, and my my view is like I, I think about the absurdity of arguing against the phrase "Black Lives Matter," right? Because 
you're saying black lives don't matter is that is that really the argument and and it, it's it's a little bit of a rhetorical trap that, it is it's crafty that, that the that the marxists will always put us in and and one of my whole missions in life is to take back uh words that have been hijacked by people with agendas and 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 i'll focus on the left the right does it as well but um the the original reaction i had to black lives matter i've said this a thousand times was the typical conservative um, slash libertarian take, which was, no, all, all lives matter. And I didn't understand what it meant until I had a chance to actually talk to uh, Black Lives Matter activists. And they explained to me that in the context of criminal justice, uh, Black Lives Matter don't matter enough. And that's what we mean when we say that. But the, the challenge that um, a lot of conservatives and some libertarians are falling into this trap is like, we can't use the word liberal anymore, which used to mean free mm -hmm. and responsible. Uh, we can't use the word community anymore because Barack Obama <laughs> was a community organizer. We can't use the word justice because it's been corrupted by this, this, this sort of weird notion of social justice. We can't use democracy because, because the other side uses those words, but, but honestly, those are our words. Right. Um, community is our word. It's not, it's not a word that that the uh, Black Lives Matter Marxists would want. They don't, they don't want, they don't want bottom-up community. They want top-down control. How do, we, how do we deal with the corruption of the language? Well, it takes people with the courage to just say it. So one thing that's really, I found my eyes just rolling in the back of my head during the last couple months is when you have legislators on camera, Republican legislators and Democrats too, where they're asked, do Black Lives Matter? Will you say Black Lives Matter? And they say, it's very dramatic and it goes viral on Twitter. They say all lives matter, right? And it's become like a, a Rorschach test for are you team red or team blue? Yeah. Where's the politician that's just willing to say to the reporter, of course, black lives matter. I support that sentiment. I oppose police brutality, but I also reject the official black lives matter organization, which, and I reject the Marxist hijacking of that movement that they have indeed attempted. Why can't someone just clearly say that distinction Yeah. instead of just, beating their chest to their tribe and, and signaling, I'm with you. Yeah, and, I, and when I do it, I always try to define my terms after, after I say something, because you know, there's, there's a debate um, within constitutional conservatives. You know, constitutional conservatives always say, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Right. And yet the, the notion of democracy is, is very much um, a, an important, like universal value held certainly by Americans and, and maybe maybe most people globally. And so why would you give up the word democracy? Because when, when we say democracy, we're not talking about the crude version of democracy where 50 plus 1% of the public get to do whatever they want to the other 49%. Right. That, that's horrific and we've seen that play out in, in places like Nazi Germany. But when I say democracy, I'm talking about pushing power all the way back as much as we can to the end user so that people are free to, to make choices and, and define their own lives. And, and that, that certainly applies in the market. The market is just a big fat democracy where everybody's getting what they want because right. they're making choices and, and no one's forced to do anything else they want. But, but that, like, I think it's important to never get trapped into to making um, dumb arguments just to own the left. Right, and vice versa also. But that is fundamentally the question that, that people have to ask themselves is, are you willing to take a stand 
for what you believe in, even if it means that you're going to step out on a limb from the tribalist forces that be. This is true for a lot of journalists. There's a very clear pathway to clicks and fame and television hits. Either play one tune that's completely appease, appeases one base and hit all the right bona fide signaling words or do the other. Yeah. Either one is a path to prosperity and to adoration within a certain circle. Um, neither one is actually honest or principled. Uh, and for someone to do that and say, yes, Black Lives Matter, but also Marxism is bad, and also police reform is good, qualified immunity is bad, but defund the police, abolish ICE, uh, anti-cop sentiment, Portland isn't actually just fine, everything that's going on with Portland with rioting, all those things. To actually take a, a, a third way where you're, you're shrugging off the, the kind of constraints of tribal thought, that takes doing. It takes a little bit of guts, and it also um, it, it opens yourself up to a lot of incoming, as I'm sure you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. So I, like, I, I can't think of the senator's name, but there is a Democratic senator um, who tweeted recently, maybe you remember who this was, uh, Libertarians should be freaking out about what's happening. Brian Schatz, Hawaii. Yeah. And, and there's, there's something about, um, particularly like, like the new authoritarian left, not all, not all liberals, um, certainly not civil libertarians, but the new authoritarian left seems to want to pick on libertarians about everything. And I don't understand that at all because it's not like um, we have a, a seat in power, but, but you know, like a, a thousand libertarians responded to him and said, dude, where have you been? We've been paying, we've been worrying about this stuff for a long time. But, but I, 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 Portland used to be my favorite city, and, really? and I'm not sure, and I, I just love the, the bohemian culture and, and you know, the coffee and the beer and all the, the cool things about living in Portland, not the Portlandia stuff. I've never, I've never met the chicken I was going to have for dinner, but the, now it's, it is, it's, a, it's a war zone, and it's been that way for years. And I, I saw some other uh, politician today said that, that blaming Antifa for the violence in Portland is uh, is bogus. And I'm like, no, you have to watch what's happened there for the last three years. And Antifa has an explicitly violent theory of social change. So they're willing to punch people. They're willing to hurt people. Um, they're willing to burn things down. So if Senator, what's his name? Brian Schatz from Brian Hawaii. Schatz. Um, I, don't, I don't actually know much about him, but like, when did you start freaking out about Portland? Because we should have been Oof. freaking out about Portland three years ago when this violence started. Right. Well, I've been working in libertarian media circles for a while. And I remember five, five, four or five years ago reading stuff about qualified immunity when I didn't know what that was and no one knew what that was. And now everyone's starting to talk about that and knows what they are. Right. So somebody who thinks libertarians haven't cared about criminal justice reform is somebody who doesn't know any libertarians or knows people who just call themselves libertarian and aren't actually. But Cato, Reason... Freedom works. Any place that's actually somewhat libertarian has been talking about criminal justice for a while now, not just all yeah. of a sudden. Um, and it's not just uh, progressive senators from Hawaii, right? It's also true on the nationalist, populist right. I almost laugh when I watch a Tucker Carlson monologue about how the libertarians in D.C. have presided over the hollowing out of middle America. I'm like, libertarians have so little power in, in our political system if you think Mitch McConnell is a libertarian, I, I think you need to open up like Milton Friedman 101, right? The idea that 
the Republican establishment or these people who tr take turns expanding the federal government, first Team Blue, then Team Red, have been beholden to libertarian interests, it's almost an exercise in absurdity, frankly. Um, but I guess it's nice to be thought of as powerful. I mean, but only would that it, it were actually the case. Yeah. It, so you, you I, I noticed you, you pick on Tucker Carlson quite a lot. And, and depending on the night, um, I mean, I, I quite admire uh, some of his takes on uh, foreign policy, for instance, as, right. as, as someone that's skeptical of, of never-ending war. But then the next night, he, he goes after capitalism and sounds like Bernie Sanders and and says that libertarians control all the levers of power in Washington D.C. Like, what do you do? You think that there can be a um, does populism and libertarianism actually go together, or is it oil and water? So populism, it's interesting, isn't really a coherent policy worldview for most people. It's more of a sentiment, a feeling. Um, a rhetoric and I actually think libertarianism can be populist or it can be sold in a way that appeals to populists so if I was running a campaign tomorrow and I'm not but I would be running on and my audience was like populist conservative voters I would be running on cutting your taxes uh, criminal justice reform occupational licensing ending corporate welfare abolishing it all on day one in charge all sorts of things that in a way are populist right it's helping the little guy getting the government's boot off your throat. And you can almost make a populist argument for a lot of libertarian ideas. And instead, the current populists are people who kind of want to use the state as their savior. And I have nothing against Tucker Carlson. I just think he is, even in the, the self-admitted populist, he is their like golden standard, their idol, their symbol bearer. And I, it is interesting because I agree with you. On foreign policy, I, I love the guy. He kept us out of war with Iran single-handedly. Um, by by pleading to Trump, don't do this. Mm -hmm. Don't let John Bolton talk you into this or whoever. Um, there is common ground between the nationalist populists and the libertarians. And I'm always willing to work with anybody. I mean, progressives even. Um, and I admire people like Rand Paul who introduce bills co-sponsored with Bernie Sanders or um, Rep. Bro Khanna. All these people who there's some overlap on foreign policy or drug legalization. You should do that. But the nationalist populist right, as spearheaded by Tucker Carlson, is fundamentally incompatible with liberty and small government, openly rejects that concept. So to the extent that those there are agreements around the margin, to me, that doesn't get us away from the fundamental battle that's probably going to have to happen after Trump either loses or it wins one more reelection and stands down for the future of the right more broadly is it going to go in this european nationalist big government conservatism or is it going to go back to the american conservative principles of small government with some libertarian influence that's going to be the defining fight uh, in the near future yeah i mean it, it there are some some strange similarities with bernie sanders populism because uh, almost everything that Bernie would complain about in a, in a stump speech, it could be mass incarceration, it could be never-ending war, it could be crony capitalism. These are all sort of cautionary tales about giving government too much power. And and, and the new nationalist conservatives um, are chasing that, that same tale in the sense that, well, we just haven't used power right yet. And, and you know, 
if 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 Tucker's complaining about capitalism, he's not really. He's complaining about cronyism. Right. And he's he's looking at the collusion between uh, big business and big government. And and what I want to what I want to say to him is like, can you imagine a scenario where government is big, where Jeff Bezos doesn't get the first seat at the table? He's always going to get the ear of the chairman first. Your 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 blue collar workers that you that you claim to defend, um, they are always disenfranchised in a world where all the decisions are made in Washington D.C. There's an ecosystem there, so he's very good at crit- criticizing the ecosystem, but it feeds on power. And I'd love to have that conversation with. Uh, I've I've spent more time talking with progressives about that. They have the same problem. I think if if you want if you want justice. Um, Government power is the first problem you have to tackle, and and the national conservatives have the same problem. Yeah, they do, and it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Because I guess the today's socialists show us you can keep playing the same fiddle, but like it'll work next time, right? This is the same situation we see play out in political movements all the time when they're advocating for more government. Uh, the idea that we haven't used the government assertively enough over the last decade, right? That's what the new nationalists say. Well, look at the the federal employment and the total number of government jobs trending up and trending up. And look how many new wars we started and how much money we spent. And so the, how many regulations, I, I, I don't even know. We could probably fill this room with pages added to the federal register yeah. in the last couple of years. So the idea that we haven't done enough, it's just it's a very convenient argument because you can always make it because it's not really contingent on reality. So I... I've been growing more and more frustrated with, um, and I'll sound like a populist here, but I think the the ultimate version of haves versus have-nots have been under the COVID lockdowns and the difference between people, particularly people employed by the government and this entire ecosystem that I'm talking about. Um, they were never worried for a minute about their jobs under lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And, and I live in this, this bubble inside of D.C., and people are so obsessed about whether or not you're wearing a mask, but not, not a single one of them seems anxious about whether or not they're going to pay their mortgage or be able to feed their kids. And to me, that's, that's a, there's a populist rage there about what government officials have done to um, working men and women and small businesses. And, and I'm thinking about another article you wrote um, for Fee about the destruction of minority-owned businesses under lockdowns. And, and to me, that, that instinctually made a lot of sense, but you've put some data to it. Right. I mean, just think about it. Any government policy is going to hit people at the margins the most. So the first businesses to, to go under and, and that aren't going to reopen because of an extended government lockdown are going to be the businesses owned by immigrants or minorities or poorer white Americans, whereas Walmart can weather a lockdown for a while. And they've also got uh, every member of Congress on speed dial. So these kinds of overarching and, and the debate over the lockdown is very complicated, right? And especially the different levels of government and what how to handle a pandemic. I'm not sitting here to tell you I, I can I have the secret plan to handle the next pandemic. But what you can very clearly see is all the ways in which this heavy-handed government response has crushed everyday people. It has crushed small business owners that will never reopen, retail owners that will never reopen. You have churches not allowed to, to open while you have thousands of people allowed to pour in the street. 
right? We ha we're set to run a $3.7 trillion deficit, almost triple what we did at this, the height of the 2008 crisis. And that's even before these new bills they're discussing. That'll be trillions more on the pile, right? So we are mortgaging away people's future. We're enacting government intervention on a, into the economy on a scale that's unprecedented in modern American life, right? You have 70% of the unemployed right now. Of the f more than 50 million Americans are paid more to stay on welfare at home than to go back to their jobs under the broken system that Congress rushed through. So part of me agrees with you and wants to say, if there's ever going to be a time that people will finally see small government is the answer, it's got to be now, right? But it's, it's not that simple. And people, a lot of these problems get spun as the government not doing enough. Uh, and that seems to be what peop some people want to hear. It's, I mean, it is a catch-22 where like if, if the government forcibly shut down the restaurant where you were working, and by the way, George Floyd was one of those guys. Mm -hmm. Um, the guy that was murdered by the cop in, in Minneapolis, um, he had lost his job because the Minnesota governor had shut down um, the, the, almost the entire service industry, almost the entire economy, and he was, he was committing an, an, a tiny, allegedly, it was, it was an alleged crime, and I don't, I don't know if they've ever even pursued it, but you know, the, the, the consequence of that for him was, was his life. The problem that I have with all of this, and, and you write about this as well, that the next bill, Nancy Pelosi wants to spend another $3 trillion. And by the way, I don't, I don't think Trump is really all that inclined to oppose that. Oh, he doesn't. He's going he's gonna to want to dump a lot of money into the economy before the election, and then he's going to want to put his names on the checks that go out to, to workers. But like um, you write about the, the endless um, generous unemployment benefits, which makes it impossible for small businesses to rehire their employees. But, but another aspect of that is the bailout for the states. Right. And, and way back when, when New York started, when Cuomo started locking down New York, and, and California started locking down. And, and back then, it was very much the blue states that took the lead with a very authoritarian approach to this. I thought to myself, have they even thought about what that does to state revenue? They, oh. have, they have this incredible welfare states, and they're already completely in the red. And, and now they've, they've shut down, you know, they've, they've cut off the hand that feeds. And so what are they gonna do? They come to the federal government I think I think there has to be an incentive where if if states are going to act as badly as I think New York and California have, they should they got to figure it out for themselves. But if we bail them out, that they'll why would they change their behavior? Right. I mean, it's economics 101 that there's moral hazard. If you have car insurance, you might be a little riskier when you're driving. Uh, that's what we see when the federal government steps in to bail out big businesses that take irresponsible risks. Well, next time they're going to take more risks because they know that Congress will pick up the tab. The same is true for state and local governments. You know, New York City and, and Cuomo and de Blasio, they decided that they wanted to undertake an experiment in unprecedented big government. So did Gretchen Whitmer in the state of Michigan. But you know what? That's great. Federalism. You want to do that, but your people should have to pay for it. So that way they know what they're getting and they yeah. have to actually pay for it in their next tax bill to the state. And then we can actually see if it works when they get to do this, but then shift off the tab to the federal government, which really just means printing more money at the Federal Reserve and passing it on to me to pay off when Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are long buried. Um, 
that is when the the experiment isn't fair right because they get to dabble in it and then just pass off the bill to, to other people they're going to keep doing that yeah the the voice of common sense fiscal conservatism I, I used to be a tea party organizer and and i very much agree with rand paul who apparently just stormed out of a republican caucus meeting saying essentially my colleagues have gone insane right i may be putting words in his mouth but not much um, because they're they're gonna they're uh, pelosi i think holds all the cards right now and she she put out three and i bet you by the time they're done it's more than three not right. less because they're not going to split the difference because she knows that republicans won't go into the election having cut these these wildly generous unemployment benefits so she's gonna it's she's gonna throw all that other stuff in there i I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see, even though she only controls the, the House, um, I, I feel like she's got all the power. Right. I mean, you and I are fiscal conservatives, and there's still a lot of us out there in kind of the conservative base or movement where there aren't fiscal conservatives are the halls of Washington, D.C. Rand Paul, lo love the guy. He's an exception for sure. He walked out of that meeting and he said uh, they all sounded like Bernie bros, all his Republican <laughs> colleagues. Uh and it's basically become the status quo. Yeah. Part of that is because President Trump, anything else about him, is not fiscally conservative. He's openly said, you know, that's not going to be my problem eight years from now if there's a crisis. Uh, I'll be long out of office. He has totally failed on yeah. the budget deficit, on the national debt. Whether There's lots of other things you could give or take there. But that is one area where he has completely failed to lead. And people knew that. He never really was. Um, but that's true for Republican legislators across the board. Most of them aren't actually fiscally conservative, and, and we're going to pay for that maybe just once they're out of office and have been safely reelected. At, at least on that issue, he was always consistent. He never claimed to be a fiscal conservative. I, right. I think on the campaign trail, he used to say, I love debt, <laughs> um, which was just a, a, a fundamental shift away from, from what the Republican Party at least was pretending it believed during the 2010, 2012, even the 2014 elections. And something happened, and I, I think I think most of them, with with a few exceptions, were just pretending. I think people did believe it, but the type of people that run for office, it, it is a public choice theory, mm -hmm. right? The type of people that want to run for Congress or Senate, and I say this as somebody who wrote in his third grade yearbook, I want to be in the U.S. Senate, so maybe I'm describing myself a little bit. I hope not. But the type of people that want to run for office are the type of people that will say what it takes to get elected. So during the Tea Party movement, I, I would like to believe a lot of people believed that. A lot of the politicians just kind of latched onto it, probably not. Yeah. Um, and that's why when the, a new figurehead came along and dispensed with that orthodoxy, a lot of them, barring the ones like Rand Paul or Thomas Massey or other ones who truly were believers and have pretty much held to those principles, the rest just kind of took the easy out. Yeah. And they, all of a sudden they could go with the new consensus and the new wave. I think all we can do is try to steer that wave back in the right direction and, and make through argumentation, through appeal, through, through you know, mass media as much as we can, try to right the ship, and then the politicians will follow. Ultimately, we, politics is downstream from culture. We have to convince everyday Americans to care about debt and deficits and small government, and then the Republicans in Congress will catch up to whatever the polls say. So you said something earlier that I, I think is worth, and I, and I want to kind of wrap up on this note because it, it gets to whether or not we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the future. Because you, you talked about the, the sort of cancerous nature of, of 
clickbait tribalism where if you want to succeed in journalism, you want to succeed in politics, you want to succeed in ideas, it's all about clicks and clicks generate um, revenue and, and all that stuff. And it, it's really uh, dampened my, my hopes for what at one point I was, I was quite romantic about the potential of social media to liberate the mind and, and, and democratize knowledge and all that stuff. And, and you wrote this piece for, again, for the Foundation for Economic Education about why George Orwell's warning on self-censorship is more relevant than ever. And you're not, you're not talking about government censorship. Right. You're talking about the, the um, censorship of mobs. And maybe online mobs is the biggest problem right now. Um, what is our responsibility of, of people that are trying to get at, at right and wrong and the truth and, and, and how does how do we battle that that censorous society that we seem to live in right now? Well, part of the problem is that mainstream media is um, not a, a productive avenue to go about this. The people who are doing this, right? That article I talked about, Barry Weiss, Andrew Sullivan, they're not even conservatives or libertarians. They're just dissident thinkers, moderates with heterodox opinions on some things. They've been basically chased out of the New York Times and New York Magazine, and we've seen this across the board, really, um, because they have ideas that get Twitter mobs upset, and the left-dominated institutions in mainstream media have allowed Twitter to become their public editor, as, as Barry Weiss said. I think the most promising solution to this, because I've encountered it myself as a journalist, right, you know what you have to write to get the call from, from certain Fox bookers or to get shared by Team Trump to their 10 million followers and get great traffic. The same way you know what to write to get shared by all the never Trumpers with a lot of followers and maybe get a call from MSNBC to talk about how awful Trump is, even if it's something where maybe he's actually doing the right thing. So that is the incentive structure, but there are some ways around it. And those ways most often involve bypassing traditional routes. So social media has been taken over by that somewhat, but things like YouTube and things like Substack, Substack is this new platform that Andrew Sullivan has gone to, uh, where you write directly to readers who sign up and, and in many cases pay for your writing that's no clickbait, no ads, and you're independent. He's already got 70,000 subscribers. So we're seeing um, people finding new avenues to have these conversations free of the shackles of these institutions that have been corroded by tribalism, I think that might just be our best hope. So we've, uh, along those same lines, uh, Free the People and myself, we've started a platform on locals, which is what uh, Dave Rubin, and I think Jordan Peterson was involved mm -hmm. in, the, in the concept. And you know, the, the people on there are, are so far definitely right of center, but, but the idea is to actually have an open and honest argument with friends and and people that may not be friends. They may have a very different position, but I sort of aspire to have, like I'd love to have a, an honest argument with progressives about government power without right. the name calling, and I don't want to come out of it being tagged a Nazi and a racist, but but there I, I know a lot of progressives that don't want to have this stupid argument. They want to have an honest argument, um, but it probably needs to be in, in these types of platforms because because Twitter just seems to be like a just a burning cesspool dumpster fire all in one. Right, I, 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 I started just is, turning off the notifications, tweeting memes, food pictures. I can't take Twitter too seriously anymore because yeah. it's so toxic and, yeah. and, and that's 
that's the internet more broadly but i, I it is sad because i actually feel the same way especially um for me one of my issues is lgbt issues right um, i'm gay and, and fairly right wing i would love to debate respectfully a conversation like this yeah. with a, a mainstream lgbt democrat activist head of the human rights campaign or a comms person for glad or any of these people they would never do that yeah. they've blocked me before yeah. we've even interacted and the same is true uh, to some extent on the right in this in the sense that a lot of fox news hosts or other conservative networks they don't have guests on who will truly debate them they have guests that agree with them and guests they can laugh at yeah. like crazy and this is not just a fox thing this is a cable news thing they'll either have people who agree with them to go back and forth and validate each other or they'll have some loony the worst of the opposite side some crazy professor or something that they can kind of have a laugh with but the the days of like crossfire style actual debate in mass media there those days are like mostly gone and that's really a sad thing if you're like me or, or you and you really value that open debate and open uh conversation okay fun homework assignment go back and watch the crossfire debate between frank zappa and robert novak about and, I, and it had to have been about censorship of music and it, it was it was a pretty tough debate but it, it was where both sides were actually roughly what year was it oh that would have been early 90s probably so before i was born uh, thanks for that yeah i was <laughs> i was i was well into middle age by then so thanks for old shaming me but uh so tell us uh, uh where we can get more brad palumbo like where do you publish and who are you affiliated with one more time Right. So, I mean, my Twitter is still one of my big things. It's Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. Uh, and I would actually recommend people check out my Substack newsletter, which is where I write directly to people without the clickbait, without the trolls. Um, that's one great way. But I write a twice weekly column for the Washington Examiner. I'm fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, where you read my writing and hopefully some of your listeners do, too. And then I'm also senior contributor for Young Voices. Uh, and so that's kind of it. But um, social media, uh, the newsletter I, is a big plug. I think that's one of the, the coolest things out there is this trend towards newsletters away from hot takes and um, that sort of thing. Well, that's what we aspire to here. So, so thanks, for, uh, thanks for being civil. And I'll have you back on to debate whether or not every American should own a tank. Because oh, I yeah. think Me, that's key. Yeah, we'll have that. We'll fight that one out. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.